This is Arthur Bush. Welcome to Radio Free Flint. We have Phil Hagerman, who is a entrepreneur, a philanthropist. Your personal story uh, dates back to working in a pharmacy with your father, right? Uh, that's right, Art. Yeah, I got out of college in 1975. I'm kind of an old guy, but still, still enjoying life and still working. But, um, but my dad called me out two weeks before I graduated from college and said, son, I sold my company. He was a small, he was a partner in a small chain of four drugstores. And his next, in his next comment, he said, but I just bought it back. I said, dad, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, and he said, well, I swapped my share of the four drugstores for the one new store that you and I are going to come run. So get your butt out of school and come help. And where was that store at? It was on uh, Beecher Road. Uh, yeah, excuse me, that was on Flushing Road originally. Our original location was on Flushing Road. Uh, and they built the store in 1973. It wasn't doing very well. 75 was a really serious economic downturn. And his partner really wanted to close the store. Dad felt like he had a kid graduate from college and him and his son ought to just take it over. And so that's what we did. And you went to college in uh, Michigan? I did. I went to Ferris, which was a very well-known small school, but a very well-known pharmacy school. And you raised your family in Fenton? Or? I did, absolutely, in the Fenton area. I lived, I've lived in the Fenton area most of my life. And again, just uh, commuted back and forth, uh, you know, the 15 to 20 miles or minutes to Flint. Did you grow up in the city at all? Or did you ever live in the city? No, we were kind of lake people art. You know, when I was really little, my dad's original location was in Davison. I lived in Davison. And, and our dad's original drugstore was Davison Road Pharmacy. Uh, and then Fenton Drug was actually original. Davison Road was the first one my dad ran. But we moved to Fenton when I was really young. And I grew up in Fenton, Lake Fenton Schools, kind of a country boy a little bit, you know, living on the lakes out in the Fenton area. You've been described by some people who called you the, the trifecta man. You're somebody who not just has donated as money, but also gives time and talent and your treasure to the city and seeing it redeveloped. And how did that come about? Well, it's interesting, Art. And, you know, I appreciate those, those nice comments. Um, I, I do think sometimes it takes more than, you know, it takes more than money. It does take, you know, uh, kind of an intensity and, and activity and things. And really all that came about uh, as we, you know, my, my business was in Flint Township for most of the career. Again, you said on, on Flushing Road, and then we moved it to Beecher Road. And so I was engaged with the city of Flint, but not actively involved in downtown, you know, kind of living in Fenton and, you know, going back and forth to work. But as we started to grow the company and I started to buy uh, and move my business into larger locations, we moved into a large location on Corona Road where there were four buildings. We bought a couple of buildings. And then very quickly, we realized we were going to outgrow that. And in 2009, the Great Lakes Tech Center, you know, went up for auction and we got involved and we acquired a, a major chunk of it, about half of it. And in the end of 2010, we had renovated it and we moved, you know, 295 people in there. And from there, are I think my maybe my my love for Flint and my involvement, you know, those you know time, talent, treasure probably accelerated a lot. You think about 2010, right? You couldn't have asked for a worse economic downturn. The entire country, you know, the automotive industry had turned down in the late 90s, early 2000s. So Flint was getting decimated by that. And then in 2008, you had the financial crisis. On top of that, General Motors and everybody got beat up even worse. And so it was a really, really hard time for the city. All of a sudden, we had a company that was growing like a rocket ship. You know, we moved 295 people into the building in 2010, and I committed to the governor to get some tax breaks that we really, that we met, that we could hire a thousand people in five years. And so, you know, in Flint in 2010, when everything was really going downhill, that was news that had been unheard in a long time. 
And we had accomplished that. We actually did that and met all our goals. And so I think the city embraced what we were doing so powerfully, Art. It almost scared me. Um, I'm like, well, we're just one company and we're just one group. But, um, but they embraced us with such open arms that we really started to give back. And, and you know, we created a win-win art, right? We created an opportunity for people right. to thrive in a city that was looking for a, a chance. We had this opportunity to hire a thousand displaced automotive workers um, and move them into healthcare and retrain them. The city really gave back to us and embraced us at every level, the city and the state both. And it was just a really exciting ride. Now, your pharmacy has been described as one of the largest specialty pharmacies in the country. I'm not sure I understand that business model. Could you explain it a little bit? Yeah, I can do the real short version of that art. Specialty pharmacy really started in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And what happened is more and more complex drugs. Everybody, everybody understands the model of going to a Walgreens or going to a CVS or going to a corner drugstore. But more and more drugs started to come to market that were incredibly expensive and oftentimes very toxic. And then rules came out that made pharmacy in general more complicated. The Medicare Part B, uh, Part D program, I mean, the donut hole where people's drugs were covered and then they weren't covered and then certain parts of them were covered. And pharmacy as an industry got complicated and the drugs themselves coming out got incredibly expensive. And what that required, it required pharmacies to start acting differently and a group of pharmacies started adding services and capabilities that were different than the standard Walgreens or the standard corner drugstore. We started being able to sell drugs that no the other drugstores didn't have. At one point, 70% of Diplomat's uh, sales were coming from drugs that only 20 or 30 pharmacies in the United States had access to. Especially pharmacy became the management of complex illnesses and patients with serious health problems and managing expensive and highly toxic drugs. And Diplomat moved quickly from the year 2002 or three uh, aggressively into that. And that's what grew our sales so astronomically. And we grew was, our 25 was, million sales. You know, we were a $10 million sales pharmacy in 2000. In 2005, we'd grown to 25 million in sales, but then that's when all the changes came. And we went from 25 million to 35 million to 65 million to 175 million to 350 million in five years. And then we went in 2011, I think we hit, late 2010, I think we hit a billion in sales. And in 2013, we hit 2 billion in sales. We actually grew by a billion dollars in sales in 24 months. Well, I locate in Flint of all the places in the United States or the world. Well, you know, we we started here and my, my, my headquarters at Diplomat were here. And so it made the philosophical difference there. But also, you know, at that time, you know, we had to hire a lot of people in Michigan and Flint, Flint, Michigan in particular, had one of the highest unemployment rates. I remember at that time that we were looking to hire these people uh, in late 2009 and 2010, the country's unemployment rate had climbed to close to 14%. And I think Las Vegas and Flint uh, were the highest uh, cities at close to 25%. So I needed to hire a lot of people. I had a lot of people, good, hardworking Midwesterners that really were willing to do, you know, a, a great task and a good job. And so we hired people for call centers, we hired people in the medical space, we hired people to be patient care coordinators. You know, we trained people who had not worked in healthcare to be healthcare workers. And um, it was part of what was really powerful to me is this community embraced us and people stepped up. We were in amazing hyper growth, but we were able to hire people to keep us ahead of the curve. Now, the management of that operation must have been pretty complicated from a little pharmacy on Beecher Road. How did you make that transition? You know, it, it, you're right, Art. It was, a, it was a wild, crazy time. 
I, you know, I always learned a long time ago that were a lot of people smarter than me. I just needed to surround myself with them. And so as we started to grow really rapidly, we were growing so quickly. I had the luxury of being able to hire really good people. And we actually hired a lot of people at a leadership level from around the country. You know, the head of Hewitt Packard, you know, sales who'd gone to work for Walmart and was running Walmart, a 1-800-CONTACTS and Walmart.com came on board to, to manage a portion for me. A guy moved from California that was running a $100 million specialty pharmacy out there and moved to Fenton and Flint to be my head of operations. So we brought leadership that understood the industry from around the nation. And then we filled in with people with skill sets you know, from the local community, because in the local community of Flint and Genesee County, even in Michigan, we didn't have the leadership skill sets, but we had the great working mentality and we had the great workers. So we just, we stayed ahead of the curve art. Eventually you sold Diplomat Pharmacy. So that's what that's I'm right. Told. Well, we took it public first. We went public in 2014, did an IPO. That was an exciting time. And I, I had never really wished to be a, a, you know, a public CEO, but it was a very exciting time. And it's kind of powerful, you know, as a CEO, you get the stand in front of investors and, and talk about, you know, the company you love. And so that was a pretty fun time for me. But I retired in 2018 and the company was up for sale. And in um, early 2020, that sale consummated, you know, they sold the company to United, really a top, uh, a top five fortune, a fortune 500 company. I think they were the largest healthcare company in the United States and a fortune five or 10 company altogether. This company hasn't moved out of Flint yet, right? No, they haven't. You know, of course, COVID has created a situation where, you know, that facility has mostly been working remotely. Knock on wood, I hope they, I, I hope they keep a strong presence here. I don't really, um, you know, since they bought in, I'm not on the board, I'm not involved. But you're correct. Uh, you know, the diplomat entity is still operating in its same location out of the Great Lakes Tech Center. But again, oh. mostly remotely and as we wait for COVID to finish. We definitely at Diplomat grew and expanded from a traditional drugstore filling prescriptions. We added the whole patient care side of it where we started. I mean, at one point, you know, I think we had almost 100 nurses that were uh, employed by the company. We started wow. adding home infusion services, and that became a, a, a service. We actually acquired about 20 locations across the nation. And at, at the end of my reign, I think Diplomat had 26 locations in 21 states. And so we acquired in the specialty infusion space, and we acquired in the patient care and patient services space. And um, the company that bought us, United, has a division called Optum, and that's exactly what they've done. They've created, you know, a multifaceted healthcare company with lots of levers. Now, you went off and weren't content to just go to the beach. You started another company, I, I see. Well, I actually started another company ahead of time. I always loved the entrepreneurship side of things. And while it was exhilarating and exciting to run Diplomat as a large company, I did always like that early stage entrepreneurship. And so in 2014, I had created Skypoint Ventures, which was a small venture capital and real estate development firm. And we did a couple of projects. You know, I bought the Dryden building, which was the original offices of General Motors, built in 1901 by William Patterson, you know, from the Patterson Coach Company. And I bought the building next door, which was the Ferris wheel, the old Ferris Furs building. That building had been dark for 36 years. And so throughout my last few years at Diplomat, we were renovating and creating some work in Flint as kind of a sidebar uh, with my company, uh, Skypoint Ventures. So what happened when I retired from Diplomat, I kind of put my stuff in a box, got in my car, drove three miles down the road, and my new office was there. I really never stopped. And I always say I kind of tried to retire, but I really didn't. I just moved. I, I moved locations. Uh, in the, this new company that Forum Health Enterprises, is, is that a telemedicine company? 
Yeah, we're, we're incredibly excited about Form Health. We're making a lot of progress. It is a telemedicine company, but it's based on brick and mortar as well. It's interesting because telehealth, you know, telemedicine, really the term they're using now a lot, artists telehealth, has probably been moved forward 10 years in the last 18 months because of COVID. COVID has really created the need for people to be able to see their healthcare providers in a safe and a home environment, just like it has with Zoom, just like you and I right now, right? I mean, right. you know, you might have done a little bit of this before, but now it's everybody's life where we're talking remotely. Um, but we are a brick and mortar location. We have 12 clinics across the United States. We're in the process of buying another 15 or 20 this year. Um, and, uh, you know, our goal by the end of five years is to have 150 brick and mortar locations across the United States. But we do a lot of unique types of medicine. And so all of our doctors already do telehealth. Like we've got a specialist on Lyme disease and things, Salt Lake City, and he has CC patients across the United States. And, you know, several of our doctors have patients from foreign countries that come in. Phil, you've done a lot downtown. and It's been reported, and I don't know if it's true, that you've put perhaps as much as $50 million in, in downtown developments, uh, either by way of philanthropy or for direct investment, uh, renovation of the Capitol Theater and other uh, charitable donations, such as uh, gifts to the University of Michigan. You must feel good about Flint to do that. You must feel that your money's, your money's well spent. You know, Art, it's a, it's a great question. And the, the absolute answer to that is I really do. And again, I always had a, a nice affinity for Flint. I mean, I, again, I grew up as a kid in, in Fenton, Michigan, and I remember, I remember, you know, seeing the sound of music at the Capitol Theater, right? I remember taking a date downtown Flint and, you know, seeing Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the beautiful downtown back in the days. Uh, my mother used to take me to Smith Bridgman's, you know, um, and so I had a lot of great historic feelings for the company. Um, and then Flint Township was a great place to build, but it's really just this last 10 years since we bought the tech center that we got deeply involved in the community. And I really understood maybe the, the hard work and the grit and the, um, the strength of the, the people in the community. And so it was easy to give back. And we did, we had the Hagerman Foundation that gave a lot of money to a number of causes. And then we got involved and excited about buying buildings. Again, I bought three buildings downtown and I renovated two of them. And we donated the third one to the Greater Flint Health Coalition, which has gone live now with a dramatically expanded you know, health network in the building that we were able to donate to them. So I, I, I do feel good about it, but I also feel like uh, we've been able to make a difference. One thing about Flint, it's got lots and lots of problems, but the problems in Flint are kind of similar to the size of the city, right? They're somewhat bite-sized. You know, Flint isn't Detroit. Uh, it, isn't, um, it doesn't have this, the, the size of the problems Detroit has. Our problems are big and our problems are challenging, but if you have a group of, a concentrated group of people like Flint has always had, uptown development and a great chamber and a number of other people that led the way long before me, you know, I felt like we could make a difference with our money and our resources. And I think we have. I agree with you hundred percent on that uh, and been involved in some of that. So there's a lot of people who have done a lot of things that form the basis of a city. And I understand that it's not always easy in Flint having been raised here. I wanted to ask you about Flint itself and maybe finish up our interview with that. What I've learned over the past year in talking to so many people about the city and looking to see, as you have, how it can be improved, what it seems to come back to is this, this identity of Flint. You referenced it a little bit, talking about uh, the city's uh, character, if you will. Does Flint have a cultural identity that is emerged from 
in, in this century? I mean, it, it seems to me in talking to people that there has become a shared identity around this concept of every of people being Flintstones. I never heard that word except on cartoons before, you know, yeah, until I, about the turn of the century here, about <laughs> 2000. Yep, I, I actually think it's great. And I think part of that, you know, Flintstones kind of came, we had, you know, sports, ex, you know, expertise coming out of the city and things. And, but I think the answer to your question is, Flint has, you know, kind of reemerged with a with a personality and a persona that I that I'm certainly proud of. You know, when you really think about it, and you know, some people have articulated this. I'm not the first person to articulate it, but uh, a lot of people believe that the middle class of the United States was born in Flint, Michigan, and cities just like it. Um, you know, General Motors and things suddenly gave people, you know, serious jobs that they could work hard and make a lot of money at and take care of their families and create generational opportunities where you had, you know, a father would work at General Motors and his son would work at General Motors and the son's son would work at General Motors. And we, they, there was a culture over, you know, uh, 50 years, you know, as, as General Motors started to really build its presence in Flint in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And that remained strong until, you know, the 80s or so. It was a thriving community and it was a tough, hardworking community and probably kind of a, a richer feeling community than it was, because even though a lot of the jobs were more blue collar, you might have a husband and a wife or family members all working, you know, extra overtime and things. And the cost of the cost of living was fairly low and the overall household income in Genesee County, Michigan, was one of the higher ones in the United States because of the success of General Motors. But, you know, as everything got beat up badly, you know, Flint people didn't go away. They just, they really showed their grit. And I, I do believe that over the last 10 years, both through the, uh, maybe the last 20 years, through the decline of the automotive industry, and then through the water crisis, this community has shown itself to be tough and resilient. And uh, while you can kick them down, they won't stay down. They'll, they'll, keep, they'll keep popping up and pushing forward. And I think that, you know, we're seeing that now. We have a thriving downtown, even as we, we came out of the water crisis, we got hit with COVID, right? And yet downtown is still thriving. Uh, people are they're still waiting lists for people to move into apartments downtown. Some people identify themselves as Flintstones. I'm sure you've come across that in your in your work in Flint. I'm not sure exactly what a Flintstone is, but I think you just described it. I've talked to 100 people, 99% of 99 out of the 100 said Flint was a resilient place. Uh, the question I want to ask you is this, uh, in other cities around the country, particularly if you look to Cleveland and Akron and Youngstown and that, that area, they've had many of the same problems and they have experienced a bit of a renaissance. Uh, especially Pittsburgh, you know, there's some experts who say that when you see what you've been involved in, which is very dynamic, very fast paced, it's changed that. So my question is, is the collective memory of Flint a problem for somebody like you who wants to take Flint in a new direction? Well, I, you know, you said a couple things. I want to circle back a, a little bit to the Flintstone thing and then talk about the reinvention. Um, you know, uh, you know, you, when you ask what a kind of what a Flintstone is, uh, you, there's a great T-shirt you can buy in Flint, and I actually sell them in our shop downstairs. And it says Flint, and then it describes it. And Flint is one of the hardest stones, you know, of all kind, right? It's one of the hardest, most resilient stones. Think about Flint with a lighter and stuff; it can generate sparks and it can create fire. And so that's part of this whole name of Flintstone is it's the strength of the Flint as a type of stone, the strength and the resilience and the sparks of that stone. Um, in terms of the reinvention and things, I think there are some challenges, you know, we, we, we have to, you know, if, if, if we're going to be a collective group of people, you know, we, we have to, 
recognize the good and the bad things that have happened, but I don't think we always have to embrace the bad things over time, right? I don't ever want to say anything about the water crisis to diminish the challenges it created for the people that were involved in it. But I think we have to recognize that a lot of challenges and things were done and the city has worked hard to move beyond that. And almost all the pipes are replaced now. And we're probably over the next two to three years, we'll have some of the best water integrity of any older city in the United States. So Flint was considered the canary in the coal mine in terms of water risk and things, but now we're going to be considered, you know, a, a path of other cities to be able to move forward. So I don't think we forget the bad things that happened, Art, but I think in the process of reinvention, we have to grab on what our strength was in the past, which was the strength of our people and our hardworking Midwest mentality. And we have to look at the resilience as part of the reinvention. And so I, I believe that we, we don't have to leave our past behind. I'm not a believer that in order to reinvent Flint, we have to become something new and different. I think we have to embrace the hardworking, the makerspace ethic that we have. We, we made things, right? We did things with our hands and we did a lot of that. We have to diversify this, this city. We can't just be an automotive company and we're not now. We're becoming a healthcare community. We're becoming a technology community. We're becoming a more diverse community. Um, but that work ethic still carries on. So I just think the reinvention needs to embrace what was great about your community and not hide the fact that we had our challenges. Uh, Hass, as part of its cultural identity as a city, become well known through decades, maybe more than 100 years at this point almost, uh, labor rights, human rights. The city even celebrates a strike. Over the years, like you, I've been involved in economic development activities as a chairman of the county board's economic development committee for six years. I served on the planning commission for the county. Some, some of the marketing people that we've come across over those years uh, of my two decades in government, some of these professionals wanted Flint to forget about its long history of activism and civil rights and fighting for things uh, such as uh, housing equality. When you look at the Flint water crisis and you look at the legacy of activism in the city of Flint and in the, in the area itself, it's that activism that actually has brought the water crisis to the fore. I mean, we're probably, we probably wouldn't be talking about a water crisis if it hadn't have been for the unwillingness to take no to the answer, my water smells you know, bad and it uh, tastes like turpentine. And you know, it's, it's, people actually told them, go get lost. That's not the spirit of Flint. They don't just go get lost. I mean, that was kind of dumb on, on their part. But when you look at what, what I'm trying to say here, Phil, is you're not constrained by any of this. It, is there room in your vision for Flint to incorporate those kinds of things that give enough room in the long term? Or I, I guess not just you specifically, but the city itself and, and how people are trying to change it. Is there enough room to incorporate those kinds of things so that we don't lose we don't lose the energy as a as a collective we don't lose the Flintstones? Yeah, I absolutely think there is, and in fact, instead of being constrained, I really think there's an opportunity to be able to feel empowered by it. You know, again, if you've got good, hardworking people who want to take care of their families, again, this whole idea of the uh, of the birthplace of the middle class, it was a, it was a great place for parents to raise children, you know, with good schools and with, you know, with um, good jobs and uh, with, you know, a level of affluency that the middle class, you know, kind of 
subscribe to it. I don't think you ever need to lose any of that. And because we had our own challenges and problems, to me, that's empowering. The, the idea of coming back from a challenge, you know, if, if everything's always easy and good all the time, it's hard to grow, right? But when you have significant challenges, those are the opportunities and the times for people to really separate and step up and grow, whether they're activists, whether they're industrialists, uh, regardless of who they are. And I think that's where Flint's at right now. So I feel empowered by the past history and, um, you know, supported by others in the community. And, you know, anything I've ever wanted to do in this community to try and make it better, I have never lacked people standing next to me and say, where's my role, right? I, I don't yeah. have to lead this charge. I just have to be part of the, you know, the front line. And there's a strong front line here that's been driving this. Many of them long before me, most of them still here, guys like Phil Schultz and, um, you know, Tim Herman, you know, in Ridgeway and, and the Mott Foundation, you know, many, many more people that have been in this community for a long time building things and creating opportunity. There's a couple of things that worry me about Flint today. I don't know if they're what worry you, but I'll share it with you. One of the things I'm worried about is there, there's been a significant change in the region. In other words, Flint's adopted. This Flintstone thing is not just the city of Flint thing. It's a regional identity that's emerged. It's a, it's a point of pride. You know, those basketball players were champions. People have taken that to, to, to their own cause. They've taken the toughness, the resilience. They've taken this onto their own. And I talked to an expert the other day in Germany, a professor who studies these kinds of things. And he says, you know, it has its, its birth in, uh, in sort of a populism that's emerged throughout uh, the world, I mean, not just in industrial places like Nuremberg, Germany, where he did a study, but also in Flint. Uh, and when you talk to uh, some of the uh, po political people, they, they've seen really significant shifts in the, the way people view uh, not just politics, but development and so forth. So the, the Flintstone thing may have some limitations and it could be, it could get, it could get to a point where if the Flintstones get frustrated, <laughs> that, that might be, you know, it's a, it's a point of, 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 of great strength. And it also could be a point of problems as maybe their, their picture of the city and how to redesign the urban space gets done and they feel alienated by that. There's really two approaches. Uh, one is raise hell about it or move away and give up. Given that's one worry I have, and, and from a public safety point of view, that worried me a lot uh, for quite a few years. I'm interested in what you worry about, because I'm sure your worries are a lot different focus than mine. That is about the city itself. And when I say the city, I mean the whole place, I mean just the region itself. Again, we are doing business. Forum Health is, you know, creating business, uh, you know, nationally. And yet we moved the headquarters of Forum Health in the last year. Uh, the headquarters of Forum Health were split between Chicago and Salt Lake City. And we moved it up here. We moved our call center to the uh, fifth floor of the Dryden building, where now I've got a dozen employees, you know, on the phones answering calls from all across the country. And again, part of that is because we believe in the work ethic and we believe in the, in the workforce in this community. But I mean, from, from my point of view, it's, it's really a case of, and, and, and I love the, you know, kind of that, that, that cultural feel of the Flintstones, but it's really more than that. I don't think that's just what it is. I think it's just really a, about a resilient community that was, um, you know, people that were you know, hard work and proud and tool and die and maker space and trying to, you know, get kind of reinvent themselves and, and reinvent the city 
in a number of different ways. I don't think it's I don't think it's single faceted art. I think it's multifaceted. And we've been really blessed to have such strong organizations like the uh, Charles Stewart Mott and the Ruth Mott Foundation. And what we've tried to do here, Art, with downtown is, you know, as downtown kind of led the redevelopment, that did create some fractioning because, you know, you've got the north end of Flint and the east side of Flint that were still having some of their struggles and crime was higher in those areas. You know, they reached the point where downtown crime was really low and in the periphery, like a lot of communities, crime and great gang activity is really high. I don't think anybody in this community, particularly the philanthropic group around here, <coughs> gave up on the periphery of Flint. And so it's two things. I think we've done a good job in the last five years um, strengthening the North End, Bernston Fieldhouse, other programs like that through support from uh, Mott, through support from even the Hagerman Foundation. But then the other thing, Art, that I think was really important to Flint to help strengthen its identity was to win the suburbs back, right? When I was young, everybody came to Flint. It was the city. But then after a period of time, if you lived by Linden and Fenton and everything, you went down to Ann Arbor or Brighton. And if you lived up north, you went to, um, you, know, um, <clears throat> you know, some of the cities up north, Bridgeport or, um, um, you know, where the malls were up there. And, and so what we've done in Flint, I think, by bringing the Capitol Theater back, by having one of the top farmers markets in the country back, by having U of M Flint thriving so much in the last few years, are is we've also worked to bring the suburbs back. Right. And, you know, when the Capitol Theater was running before COVID, I heard dozens of times people said, oh, my gosh, that was an incredible concert. I haven't been, you know, J.J. Gray is here. Right. I, I haven't been downtown Flint in 20 years. I went to dinner. I went to a concert. I can't believe how great Flint was. So our, it's really a case of using all of the capabilities Flint has to go beyond just a single personality of Flintstones and really emerge as a, a, a cultural city in the a, a small Midwestern city that people love to enjoy. Right. Now that brings me to the next notion because Flint is more than its downtown and you well know that its infrastructure is un underutilized, inefficient and expensive to maintain. Uh, so it's sort of like going in a, you know, a 20,000 square foot house when you only have you and your wife. I mean, it doesn't make sense. So at some point that the city has to shrink. I mean, I know that's a naughty word in some parts of town or other parts of this country, but the reality is we've got about 600 miles of water lines and other uh, storm sewer lines and so forth. And, and uh, the best guess of some of the experts say is a city at its current population or even less would only need about 300 miles of of those lines. Some people claim that the cost of repairing that's $300 million. Do you have any opinions about Flint's efforts to uh, right size itself? Yeah, I do. I, I don't, it's not an easy answer and it's not a one-time solution, right? It's a, it's a process that takes place over time. And I think, you know, a couple things that are happening, the most important thing is to stabilize the city so it's not continuing to lose population. I think stabilization has happened and we're losing a lot less people than we did before. Um, I think the next thing is how do you bring people back into the downtowns? You know, there's a lot of interest. There was a tremendous amount of interest into moving downtowns. COVID has changed that a little bit. You know, people kind of fled from downtowns because of the traffic. I think that's going to reverse itself fairly quickly. So Art, I really think it is, you know, those are elephant sized problems and the way you fix them is one bite at a time, right? We, we aren't going to fix the, uh, you know, 600 miles right away. But I think what you've got to do is you've got to put your time and effort and money 
where it makes the most amount of difference. And I think in Flint, they've done that by, by stabilizing communities like the North End with strong programs like Bernston, um, with um, stabilizing the downtown traffic and, and bringing it as a draw with things like the farmer's market and the capital. And then um, one by one, you know, downtown, for example, you know, less than a year ago, six months ago, we opened a brand new hotel that's thriving. And so I think that it's a case of, you know, not being afraid of the problems, not burying your head in the ground, but also not recognize, recognizing that we can't fix them all overnight, right? And right. just take them on as we can. Um, right. And even, is, even the challenges of COVID have actually created some financial opportunities for cities like ours to be able to, you know, uh, take advantage of it. The water crisis as damaging as it was, created a lot of inflow of capital with the Flint that allowed us to do some of that infrastructure change. You know, COVID is gonna create some infrastructure opportunities for cities as well as some of the new money comes to cities to help them be you know, reinvigorated. We just have to be smart with what we do and we, you know, we have to learn from past mistakes, Art, and you know, try and make a difference in the future. Can, can Flint ultimately be saved as a viable, efficient you know, working place? I mean, it, it, I understand what you've done downtown. I, I'm not in any way diminishing that. I'm asking a more serious question, which is Flint has to be a viable entity in a lot of spheres. And, and those severes have to be to, to deliver public utilities and to, to do it safely, uh, to, to have public roads that, you know, are maintained and, and, and have some ability and to have a government that actually functions. I, I, my opinion at this point is the government's dysfunctional uh, at a lot of levels. Uh, is it possible to fix these problems in your opinion? I mean, I, you're an optimistic guy. I, I, Right. I'd like to hear your opinion about it. Well, I'm going to I'm going to coach my opinion to start with uh, Art and tell you that I'm an eternal um, you know optimist, right? I always say the glass is half full, and I usually think it's champagne. Um, and so, you know, those are big challenges. But but first of all, I think from a philosophical national level, we have to have our cities like Flint, Michigan, um, strengthened. And to your point. Cities like Flint and other cities like us. I was in Youngstown recently at a at a um, at a, um, a technology incubator where we were doing a um, uh, we were doing a pitch contest. I was one of the judges in a pitch contest a year ago, just before COVID. Um, you know, Pittsburgh is a good example. Cleveland is an incredible example. Um, even Grand Rapids, when you look at how thriving Grand Rapids is today, in the '80s, in uh, early '90s, Grand Rapids had its own challenges as well. But that downtown just turned around and thrived, and it was so far ahead of us. Look at Detroit and what Dan Gilbert and his group did. Detroit is probably five to eight years ahead of where we're at. And so, again, none of those cities turned around overnight. Most of them took the resilience of the people, one bite, one step at a time. So I think cities like Flint, we, you know, we have to get enough support from the federal government. But we have to be smart internally too. You know, I think our mayor is doing a great job, and it's not easy. I think our dysfunctional government is less dysfunctional now than it used to be. Um, I think that there's better alignment in the community than there's been before. Is it all good yet, Art? Probably not. And probably some people may think we're less aligned now than we used to be. But I see less of the fight between downtown and the suburbs, um, and I see more people. Maybe we don't have all the answers but more people kind of working together to try and find them than we have had in the past. And so I see an optimistic path that requires a hell of a lot of work still. Phil Hagerman, thank you for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. 
it's nice to meet you. And I really like your optimism, to be honest with you, because thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thanks for the chance to talk a little bit about a city I love. Okay. Appreciate it.